Welcome to Shanghai Zan, a raw and lively regular debate about China tech, advertising, creativity, platforms, and the intersection of it all. Join us each session for timely and relevant discussions on all things China marketing, and we'll be joined by an entire spectrum of China experts. You can learn more about Shanghai Zan at our website, zanstation.com. I'm Bryce Witwam, and I'm Ali Kazmi. Yay! Ali, season three, we are live and on LinkedIn. We thought this season we'd try some new stuff, do some things a bit different.、Uh, in addition to our popular interviews, a podcast or episodes which cover pressing issues ourselves, you and me,、uh, from time to time. And we call this series, which we call "Agree and Disagree." And today, Ali, we are live on LinkedIn. Let's hear it. Let's hear it. All right. Awesome. Quite exciting, isn't it? It is.、Um, we've been talking about. Well, we haven't been talking about doing this for for a very long time, but it seems like we have turned a new chapter and we're ready to engage with audiences around the world live. Yeah, I mean, the crowds, popular demand. People have been asking for this. They've asked us to do to do live shows、uh, and attend performances. You know, I, I've. Turning down lots and lots of invitations. I, yeah,、um, you know, it's just that the lot list goes on, and we just decided that we would just do this uh, as a uh, as a means to 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 appease the crowd. So definitely. So let's get started.、Uh, today's topic, Ali, is my favorite topic.、Uh, last week was my favorite, but this one is also my favorite. Has performance marketing signaled the end of traditional marketing in China? Okay, so the question is: You agree or disagree? Let me just. A little bit of background before you make up your decision. Has performance marketing signaled the end of av- traditional advertising as we've known it in China? Traditional marketing focuses on you know building awareness and reputation for a business or a product. It, you know some tactics that we know like advertising, PR, events, sponsorships. The goal of traditional marketing is usually to create a positive image and emotional connection with the target audience. On the other hand, performance marketing. Which is very results-driven, focuses on generating measurable results and sales and leads. And one of the big advantage, of course, is that brands can use performance marketing to track real-time ROI、uh, and their sales efforts. And I saw a statistic on online, and I don't know if this is—I can, can't confirm whether this is true—but I, I think it's probably pretty close. Roughly 79% of advertisers. Are using performance marketing in China versus traditional marketing. So, I mean, the reality is now with all the major platforms, it's really, really more and more challenging for brands to even think about using some type of emotionally based advertising. So, it leads me to the question: Is that I think that traditional advertising is is really on the way out?、Uh, yes, it helps build brands,、uh, helps them build that emotional connection. And over the long term, brands know that they should do it, but they are too controlled, too too restricted by short-term gains and sales performance. So they always jump into, you know, live streams or performance marketing camp. So,、uh, in my opinion, we've seen basically at the end of the tunnel for traditional advertising, and it's all performance marketing moving forward. Do you agree or disagree? Hey, I have a question. Before that, are we saying that traditional marketing was not results led?、Um, it was, of course. Everything is results led, but it's a much more of a slow burn. Advertising, by and large, is to create a memory 
and jog a memory in someone's mind. And the more times that you see the message, the more times that you subconsciously grills into your mind that when you're at the convenience store in front of the, the refrigerator, you think Coca-Cola or Pepsi because you've seen the ad so many times. And that's effectively is how advertising works. And the more times that you see the ad, the more that jogs that memory and then you buy the product. And that has been the model of advertising for, you know, for God knows how long. Hey, what do you think the favorite car for kids is today? The favorite. What's the favorite car for young, young, young children, young people that don't drive cars or I mean, they. Yeah, people that don't drive cars. So just kids. I, I would say that it's probably I would throw it out to say maybe it's a Tesla, for example. Yeah, I would throw it. I just say a Tesla or something, something of high performance. It depends, of course, on the country. Uh, I don't know. In China, is it a is it an Xpeng or a BYD? Uh, I don't know. In Spain, is it a, is it a Tesla? I'm not sure. Um, is it? So I would say that. L- let's just say, for argument's sake, it's a Tesla. Where, where are you going with this? Oh, just uh, just uh, just the fact that Tesla does not advertise in the and the biggest um, like the like the the emotional cue is really just the product. And when you see the product, that's what's really getting people to or young people to be really excited by comparison when i was younger i loved porsches and 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 obviously i don't drive porsches anymore porsche surely did a lot of advertising so i wonder like i I just wonder whether whether there needs to be a balance of both the you know the the product the traditional the emotive component and performance and i think my view is that you know you can still be emotive in the delivery of of performance advertising. So you could still be a motive in the delivery of performance advertising. So if I were to break that down, for example, and I'm going to take a Coca-Cola example, um, but I think like it works equally well with with Formula One and NASCAR and and things like this as well. Historically, it was just single brand message um, on linear broadcast television. Versus today, a lot of the conversation that we have with conversations I used to have with clients were around moments. And as a result, you know, you're delivering an emotive message that is that's delivered to a consumer within a certain day part, within a certain time part at a specific location. And so, you know, so so I think we can still be emotive in the delivery of advertising. I think we can still be performance-led in the delivery of that emotion because it's attached attached to a specific consumption, it's attached to a specific moment, and that moment's what's really emotive. And so connecting brand, product, and environment, place, time, um, you can still be performance-led. So in other words, that uh, there is a performance attached to the amount of viewers uh, we're not so we're not specifically talking about. Well, there's more data. So, so I think I think my my, my argument is is that in the, even in the delivery of emotive advertising, the inclusion of data makes it performance led, right? So you you still have, you know, if you you know before it was just broad based advertising. Even the moment you start segmenting audiences, you're more performance led than when you were just using single message for all people, 
right? Then when you say, well, you know, you've already done the single message uh, or you've, you know, you've segmented your audience. But when you say then that I'm going to, I'm now not going to deliver the same message to someone that drinks Fanta, Coca-Cola and Sprite, then you've segmented your audiences further. And then when you say, well, I just want people, I just want to target consumers with an emotive message that love Coca-Cola and, and, and meals or, you know, barbecue meals, then that's, you can still deliver an emotive message, but because you've just, you're more, you, you've kind of zoomed into a specific audience, then you're a bit more performance-led than you were previously. So I think, I think advertisers, I think my answer would be the inclusion of data in the delivery of any type of advertising makes you more performance-led. And then there's obviously a measure of, how performance-led is the advertising, right? So, so I think there's different, there's a spectrum and there's different scales to that. But that's what, that's what I would go with. I remember a former client who, from LVMH, uh, one of the brands, she told me that she can get three times the level of performance. So they actually did a test. They, they ran a pure what they call a pure performance uh, execution through a live stream. And it was very much sales driven, very much on, very much off, not an emo- not emotive at all. It was just basically they're pushing the product benefit and an offer. Okay. And they, at the same time or through a similar period of time, not the same time, because if they did it at the same time, the two would impact each other. They ran emotive style advertising on digital in China through using uh, an emotional con- context, trying to build an emotional connection to the product, giving it a giving it a metaphor. I don't remember what it was, but something that that their target audience could relate to. And then they ran that, and then they ran the sales driven pure performance marketing execution and compared the two. And she said that she'd never run emotive advertising again because three to one in terms of sales on this live stream sales, three to one. But then my counter argument a lot of times is like, you know, live streaming is, is like going to a party. I mean, our live stream, today's live stream is a classic example of it. Right, we're not all that famous, so we don't have a lot of cachet. And while we're running our live stream on on LinkedIn right now, and it granted, we only gave you know we we've only we only created our event twenty four hours ago. But if we had a lot more cachet, <laughs> and we're twenty minutes late, <laughs> and, and we're twenty minutes late. So, but if we'd given if we'd done the string of advertisements prior to, we would have gotten a lot more conversion so a lot more people attending our our live stream event but i also think if you're an lvmh or if you're an estate lauder if you're a you know popular known you know household brand and you run a live stream event you already have all that equity so and and i think there's already this expectation that if i am to attend the the value exchange or what i'm going to get in exchange for attending that event is going to be some kind of a discount um, and I equate that to giving a discount to someone that's walking into into a Xiaomaipu or a uh, or a Seven Eleven to buy a Coca Cola. And so, why would you want to reduce the price 
for a cult that someone's going to buy regardless, right? So that's what you want to avoid. And I think a lot of times advertisers and clients get lost in the trap where they're really just subsidizing the cost um, at which a consumer buys their product. And what they're really doing is they're just eating into their own profit margins. So it looks great on paper, but what's really happening a lot of times, at least that example possibly, is that famous brand, people like it, they've just subsidized the cost at which they sell that product and they're just not making as much money as they could have. I mean, this is the always the the dilemma, especially small brands. Well, it's a paradox. Uh, and that's what Byron Sharp, the the Australian professor, called double jeopardy. Basically, double jeopardy is that, that small brands are fucked. The law states that, you know, brands with less market share have so have so because they, they have fewer buyers, right? That's the jeopardy. And those buyers are slightly less brand loyal. That's the second jeopardy. You're not loyal to it. So in other words, the market share declines because the, they don't have the brand the marketing penetration and the brand loyalty drops. So what you're suggesting here is that the analogy that I used works for a large brand because they have the cachet. They have the penetra market penetration. They're not suffering double jeopardy, uh, and they can they can they can create a show uh, that enables people to come and get their get their product at a forty percent discount. So, question: What's a small brand? A small brand is, is a young brand, or is it a brand that's not known? It is a brand that is has low market share, low market penetration by my de by this definition. So, given that analogy you still recommend a combination what you you don't really what you're suggesting is that there's no such thing as performance marketing it, it exists in traditional marketing well i'm also thinking that you know these big these so-called big brands were also once upon a time small brands right and so they've also had to go through the curve of a brand that's completely you know that's that's new to the market uh consumers uh, have not seen or they you know they don't know the brand they haven't tried the product they don't know what the benefit is they they don't know whether it's price competitive to whatever it is that they're using they so there's but all of i think i think all brands go through that cycle and and i think that's um you know i mean th that's where i don't know just good marketing comes into play and you kind of need to understand where your brand fits in that hierarchy so that you can do the right um, calibration of awareness versus performance because you can still be a very small brand but a very recognized brand within a community of people that are diehard for what it is that you do so if you're kind of like an organic i don't know cereal manufacturer or and and that's what you do and your 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 product is only available within uh, within your state or within your city uh, and you know if you're running a good business um, you know, the, the there is certainly room for that little brand to become a big brand, and be uh, and be and get recognition and get sold across uh, multiple states and multiple cities. In fact, you could argue that it's a lot easier to do that today because you don't have the the challenges that come with distribution and um, and making that product available in retail. 
So I think, I think historically it would have been difficult to go from small brand to big brand, but I think it's a lot easier today to go from small brand with low market penetration to higher market penetration uh, at a much less at, and at that's a reduced because cost. Better data, better segmentation, better understanding of the, who your target audience is, and a, yeah. a, a razor sharp focus yeah. on them. An existence of marketplaces as well. So, like, you know, we've, what have we got? We've got digital wallets, right? We've got high penetration, well, credit cards, but then digital wallets. Then you've got, you've got marketplaces like Amazon. And then you've got um, direct to consumer applications. You've got uh, fresh food uh, retailers. Uh, and then you've got, you know, live commerce and social commerce. So I think the, I think, I think getting a product. Um, that's been tried and tested by someone that's known to you, I think it just facilitates that brand from going from being a small brand to a big brand. But also, you know, the the advent of that brand crashing or that company crashing equally as quickly as they grew is also very likely um, just because bad news travels faster than good news and, and all of that. My question is, therefore, it's always the question that I've always faced is how do small brands become big brands? Uh, what is the right mix combination of things? What are, what do you recommend for someone to build? It, uh, again, normally they don't have a lot of money. There's a, there's a budget restriction. They, it's hard to get started. What's the ultimate combination of tactics and motive? We can talk about Tesla, right? We can talk about Tesla. I like, don't know if you remember. You remember, I think, when when Elon Musk realized he had a Facebook page. Like, I think he fired his, enti- his, social, his entire social team and he put down all of his, like, all of his Facebook pages and things like this. And, and his point was that, you know, as long as you have, uh, I'm, like, I think I'm summarizing, but, but I think his point was if you have a great product, then you don't need all that marketing. And I think he believes in the power of word of mouth, evangelism, and being ahead of the curve when it comes to technology and, and, and product benefit. I don't know. I think I'm kind of discrediting advertising and marketing over here. But I think for, for a new advertiser or a new product, or I think it might make sense for them to go to market with something that's very unique and something that, that a core set of consumers are going to latch on. Uh, and then use the marketing to make that make that product available to many more millions of consumers it's always easy to drag out tesla and apple and these like super premium brands with like great product stories and and you're right if if you do have a product that sells itself what if you have a product that commodity product like rice i'll give you an example we launched lysol in in china when i was when i was at mccann and uh it was we started with the uh now this is a an iconic brand in the U.S. This is smack dab in the middle of COVID. So obviously the uh, the brand manager thought, the, the global people thought that this is the almost amazing time ever to launch this brand. Where Lysol during COVID times increased three to six times sales. It was just, you couldn't find it. They had to find overseas sources to, to fill the shelves at the supermarkets. So this is the right time to sell in U.S. and China, and uh, it's it's basically a it's it's basically an antiseptic wipe. 
are there local brands in this space? Absolutely. So, but nevertheless, we went through the whole performance marketing matrix. We, we, and we did emotive stuff too. We created a little Doween song that we tried to get people to, to, to emulate. We also did a live stream talk show and the needle did not move. The product just did not sell. And I really believe that after that experience, the client just decided that they were just going to sell it cheap and do live stream performance type of what I call less emotive type of marketing and just focus on pure sales and just drive it into influencer show, drop the price and then sell the shit. Like that sounds like if you put a hundred people into a room and you, you know, and you turn off their water and then you say, Hey, who wants a Coca-Cola? Right. And this is how much you're going to have to pay for it. I'm pretty sure all hundred, like every single one of them are going to want to buy that Coca-Cola. But if you if if all of them are thirsty and you put an ad for a Coca-Cola, I don't know that it's going to have as much of an impact as it would if you would actually give them that product. Here's a discount. This is the voucher. Share it with a friend and then you can go all promotion on it. I think there's a like S.C. Johnson, uh, Clorox. I don't know. There were a bunch of. Um, virus killer or bacteria killer type products, and then some. I, I think most of them are all just focused on uh, on performance led advertising. And I understand the benefit of doing emotive advertising as well, because what you're trying to, what you also know, what you also know and realize is that, you know, the virus is going to have an end date, have an expiry date. What I'd be curious to see is whether Lysol in this case has stronger brand equity as a result of that advertising that they did during that viral period. And so it could be that they've been able to sustain their advertising, or, you know, even if they've sold a lot, they've been able to sustain that brand a connection with the consumer post, um, post-COVID. Um, but I'm pretty sure no one invested in, <laughs> in tracking whether or not they had a longer-term impact on the consumer. I'm not a huge fan of Byron Sharp because I still believe that there is loyalty and that people do have are loyal to brands and products and they will buy them because of of a certain emotive or functional connection that they have to them which he doesn't believe that's the case and he shows lots of data 60 70% of coke drinkers drink pepsi i do agree with him in the context that that and especially in the china market you have to pay to play and you have to continually drive the message over and over and over again to drive that that model even in a even in a performance type based environment you have to constantly be in front of people before they're actually going to decide on their own sub when i mean on their own subconsciously they're going to buy the product when i mean subconscious they're not clicking on a button in the platform they're going into a supermarket or they're buying it online or they bought it impulsively whatever they bought these antiseptic wipes question bryce do you think depending on the price point of that product you'll have varying degrees of loyalty so if we were to change the environment that you're in if you're talking about luxury so like if you're a if you believe in loyalty do you think there's more loyalty in luxury and maybe cars or things that are of higher price point versus a coca-cola and pepsi of course because anything that can be commoditized there will be there'll be less loyalty 
I mean, certainly like gasoline stations, mineral water, you know, anything that anything that can possibly commoditize, there'll be less of an opportunity to to achieve that, you know, sense of loyalty. But but if you can create products that are that are of high value, high premiumness and great and then you're creating a sense of distinction and differentiation, then you'll you'll see people that will will could technically keep coming back to them. And I, I find it interesting, like one of the one of the things that Coca-Cola does as part of their loyalty or, or as part of building loyalty is working with uh, high value, higher value um, brands. So when you're associated with a McDonald's or with an H&M um, or with a celebrity or with, I don't know, with, with Apple or with a mobile phone, um, then you're kind of trading... The Coca-Cola is still a very iconic brand, so it's easy to get, you know, everyone wants to still have that Coca-Cola logo slapped on a T-shirt. So, you know, there's still street, you still, there's still a lot of street creds for wearing, um, you know, wearing or carrying that brand. But I think one of the things that would make perhaps, or maybe that's the question, how do you get a low, low, like a a commodity product or a, a, a low loyalty brand or a CPT brand to command higher loyalty. And I guess the Coca-Cola model is brand collaboration. What else can we think of? But it gets back to our, our discussion point is that for that type of brand that has all, that's people are not necessarily that familiar with it. Uh, it doesn't have a strong sense of differentiation. It's differentiated, but not strong enough. Uh, it may not have the ultimate price point in those contexts, then emotive advertising seems to be less desirable because you just cannot create the amount of investment. Yeah, it just you can't invest in creating this this beautiful ad. It's funny because in in graduate school, I was able to sit in a class of uh, an advertising professor's class. She was talking about emotive advertising and they watching Super Bowl ads. I had to stop them to say like, this is not really the ad business. <laughs> this is kind of a fairy tale ad business. It's certainly not the ad business in China. I mean, yes, there are brands that create Chinese New Year ads and they'll do some emotional things. Uh, Apple, you know, McDonald's, Coke. They've all done those emotional uh, advertisements, but, but yeah, but generally speaking, it's not the norm. Uh, it's not most of advertising is not that, and brands that don't have the they don't have the box, they're not going to go into an emotive advertising mindset. They're going to talk about product benefit, and they're going to talk about price value. That's where creative agencies also kind of rock, right? And that's where if you are. I go back to that, I mean, I mentioned rice earlier, but that's where working for a rice brand could be really interesting. The, the, what's coming to my mind right now is if I'm, you know, if I, if I work for an agency in, a, in Thailand and I get a rock star um, creative director who can emotionalize rice, and I'm sure that he or she could really put a spin, a humorous spin on on when you eat rice or when you eat, 
you know, staple noodles or when you eat pasta and who you eat it with and, and create really strong kind of emotional connection with that product only for, you know, only so that, you know, um, uh, you, me, housewife, house husband go into retail and when they're faced with staple rice versus, you know, chuckle, laughing, kind of funny rice. I would go for the funny rice versus the staple rice, you know. So I think there's still a role for traditional advertising in that commodity sense, from a commodity, uh, from a commodity standpoint. And then if we were to take carry this conversation onwards and then say, well, then how, how do we put a performance spin to rice? Then, you know, there's different rice products that you would eat over a calendar day. And what you would have, you know, in Asia, being in Asia, uh, a lot of people have rice for breakfast. And the type of rice that you would have for breakfast or as a dessert, as part of a main meal, or, you know, in the form of biscuits, etc. There's just so many different, there's a variety of products that you can make with rice. And that's where you go into, you know, performance and using data to start, you know, upselling on that equity. So I guess your answer to my question is performance marketing signaling the end of traditional marketing the answer you will say is it depends it's not you don't agree or disagree uh you would say that it kind of depends uh and that people still need that or people still react positively to emotions in communications and that and that brands that successfully do this in a performance environment are going to succeed they're going to create greater amount of subconscious memories that will eventually play out at the supermarket. Yes. The uh, one thing I wanted to also just point out over here is, and, and you probably had this conversation as well with, with my, with my teams in the past is when, when a client comes in with a brief, a lot of time, and it's an e-commerce brief. We, you know, we walk through that brief with our team all representative or with our e-commerce lead. The gut response, ninety-five or let's say 90, 80, 90 percent of the time, is that, oh, take a pin pie, maybe right? So translation is, oh, this brand won't cut it. It has no awareness. So the gut reaction from most advertisers, at least people that are in the in a performance role, is that a product does not have enough. Uh, have enough care does not carry enough ad, uh, awareness it will be very difficult for me to sell it so what what does that mean that means that any brand that has enough brand equity much more easier to convert much more easier to sell right and advertise and you know e-commerce or people in this e-commerce performance practice they have a tendency of just you know of, of benefiting from massive brand equity that traditional advertising has built and they credit last click or the last action that a consumer does with with great sums of money just so that they can um, you know that so that they can sell as much of that product as possible that's a fallacy that most advertisers and most performance marketers live in where they aren't able to weigh the effort that you know some of these brands that have taken 20 50 100 years to build and all they're really doing today is just you know milking that brand for what it's worth and then we talked about the longer-term effect of, of doing things like that. And um, 
I like what performance marketing stands for and what it can do. I just don't like the way it's orchestrated today. And I think most advertisers and most performance marketers are lazy. Can I say that? No, no, it is, it is lazy marketing. It's easy to do. It's easy to do. It takes a lot of effort to build a brand. Uh, it takes effort to, it's so easy just to, to collaborate with some influencers, do a couple live stream shows, and then just take it from there. And then obviously, I don't know how many cases, a lot of China brands first year did amazingly well. Second year, they didn't do so well. Uh, and they blew, they ran out of cash. So all that, all those short term marketing strategies that they incorporated were ineffective to build brand equity. And unlike what you said was that these other brands, they've actually taken the time to invest in building that brand equity that now they can reap the rewards. Thank you everyone for joining us on today's episode. Join us in a few weeks for another exciting show. And to all the listeners, until then, have a great day. Thank you.